0: you can find your way in your Bibles to the white spaces, the pages that stick together. The minor prophets section of the Bible. Always struggle to know how to find certain books in the minor prophets. Uh, Habakkuk. Some call it Habakkuk, some Habakkuk, some Habakkuk. We're going to start a small little series on this minor prophet that packs a major message. Habakkuk chapter 1. I'll give you a little bit more time to find it. It's on page 1316 in my Bible. I don't know what it is in your Bible. Habakkuk chapter 1. This is the word of the living God. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we approach your throne of grace this morning and we ask for your help. Lord, that you would help us to understand these ancient words and this ancient cry, this ancient oracle, and that we might apply it to our own hearts and lives this morning. We pray that you would bring conviction wherever conviction is needed, Bring the hope of the gospel where we need the hope of the gospel. Grant repentance wherever repentance is needed. Help us to image the Lord Jesus in increasing measure. Amen. One prominent theologian of the 20th century said that preachers should preach with the Bible in one hand, and a newspaper in another hand. Now that statement might need to be modified today, given that uh, most of journalism has the integrity of the used car salesman profession. But nonetheless, you get the point, right? Uh, The idea is that On the one hand, you have the events of the world. On the other hand, you have the Bible to help us to understand the world around us and and helping people to see the contemporary relevance of the Bible. Now, sometimes that task of the preacher is a lot more easier than others. And I have to confess, in the book of Habakkuk, it's actually quite easy. As we're going to see, Habakkuk... Is living in the context of a situation where he sees the dominance of unrighteousness and injustice and wickedness, and his heart is heavy and grieved over this reality. And so, we're going to see how Habakkuk goes, lives in this context with, with all of his struggle with the reality of what we, he sees about the character of God and the world around him, and, and particularly how the people of God are not living as they ought to, and how he resolves to really come to a greater trust in the Lord in the midst of these times. And, and, and certainly with that, there's application for each of us, whether it's on a global scale, the Injustices and wickedness that we see in the world, or whether it's on a personal level, the tragedies that we experience, the, the questions that we often have, the doubts as we perhaps experience unanswered prayer. Habakkuk is going to help coach us through this. But we have to understand a little bit of the historical context. We have to go back to ancient... Israel. To before we come back to the city of Youngstown and understand how this applies to our world, and so we need to go back to the the, the situation in which Habakkuk lived. Habakkuk, he's living during a time period. Uh, that's, that's towards the end of the Old Testament, towards the end of the period of the kings of the Old Testament. If you have read through the book of Kings and Chronicles, you realize that there's a lot of bad kings, right? You know, the northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel, all the kings were bad. The southern kingdom of Judah had certain highlights of good kings... And uh, But most of them were bad. There was maybe like three or four good kings, but most of them were bad. And then eventually, God takes into captivity the northern kingdom of Assyria. And He also takes into captivity the southern kingdom of Judah, and then it's during that time of captivity that's the days of Daniel. So if you're familiar with the book of Daniel and his three friends, well, well Habakkuk, where does he fit in the midst of this? He fits right before Nebuchadnezzar comes in as the king, emperor of Babylon, and takes uh, captive Israel and, and takes Daniel and his three friends and, and, and off to, to Babylon. And so but he lives he lives right before that period but also right after the time period of the death of Josiah okay and so this was a time period in which all that revival and reformation that had taken place under the days of Josiah just crumbled like a stale cake it just fell apart and and so Habakkuk witnessed this and his heart is heavy. And so this is the context. And so let's let's pick it up in verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. So he calls this writing this book an oracle. An oracle is a burden. The prophets would often speak this way that God gives them a message that is like a burden that they have to deliver. And so, and notice he also calls it something that he saw. This is a vision. This is a revelation. This is direct revelation from God. And what we're going to see in the book of Habakkuk is it's actually a conversation with God. It's a conversation in the first two chapters where Habakkuk sees the world around him and he groans and utters what is, what is commonly called a kind of lament, a prayer to God concerning the world around him, and then God responds. Okay, God responds directly to his concerns. And then he utters another groan. And God responds again. And then the last chapter of Habakkuk, chapter 3, it's only three chapters, it's not 21 chapters like the Gospel of John, so we should be able to move through it fairly quickly. The last chapter is, is a psalm. It's a psalm that is a, a kind of a, a, a poem, a prayer. Uh, and it gives us an inkling that probably Habakkuk, while we don't know much about him, we're, we always want those details, you know, was there a Habakkuk Jr., did he pass that on to his children? What, you know, what was Mrs. Habakkuk's name? We, we don't know any of those details. We don't know much about him. But we do get a little bit of an inkling by the fact that he writes a psalm at the end of this book, which is kind of where he lands in his faith and confidence in God. And so that gives us a perhaps a hint that he might have been amongst those prophets that David had appointed to be part of uh, the musician prophets of the day. Uh, in First Chronicles twenty-five, it says, "Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for service some of the sons of Asaph and of He man, different kind of He man, and of Jeduthun." who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, cymbals, and the number of those who performed their service was. And so it goes on and mentions the various names. And so David, during his reign, he appoints these prophets who are musicians. And and we see many of the Psalms are written by these different prophets. And so... Probably, many years later, Habakkuk is in that kind of same guild of prophets who were also musicians. And also, it's very interesting, that the psalm that he writes at the end, it has all the characteristics of a, of a psalm from a psalter. It has the introduction, the superscript in one, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet according, uh, uh, according to Shigenoth, and then notice the little silas in there, the little pauses. And then notice it has the postscript at the end of verse 19 for the choir director on my stringed instruments. So this was... He wrote the words. He also evidently had his own instruments. My instruments, this is to be played on. And, uh, and so he was a musician. He's a prophet Musician. So let's get into his oracle. Let's get into his prophecy. And we're going to see his first grumbling, his first lament in verses 2 through 4. He cries out, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence! And yet, you do not hear. Save. Now, first glance at this cry causes, I think, most of us to kind of scratch our head and say, is he complaining? (laughs) Has he got a a gripe here with Almighty God? And, And there's a sense in which that's true. Okay? But let me kind of... Stretch and, and broaden your thinking a little bit here that there's a difference between a groan and a gripe. Okay, there's a difference between a cry out to God and a complaint, a sinful complaint. Okay? We see this even in the book of Exodus, right? Um, we see in the early pages of the book of Exodus, the Hebrews as they're in slavery and experiencing all the hardships of Egypt and the murder of their baby boys, they cry out to God, right? They cry and God answers them, right? He begins to raise up a deliverer. He raises up Moses. But then later on in the book of Exodus, you know, when uh, they're in the middle of the desert, God has just miraculously delivered them out of Egypt and and uh, they, they don't like the water, they want some food, they start complaining, Right? And and we can see that those complaints later on in Exodus are not good, right? They're sinful, they're they're evil, okay? It's the heart of pride and self-righteousness, but but there is a place for the cry. In fact, if you were to study the book of Psalms, um, those who study... The book of Psalms often categorized these different psalms into genres, different kinds of psalms. Just like we categorize movies, you know, you have suspense, action movies, you have sci-fi movies, you have drama with tears and all that, and you have comedy. Well, the psalms, you have an entire genre of psalms that are called lament psalms. And did you know that the lament psalms are the major category of psalms in the Psalter? I haven't done a count, but there's dozens and dozens out of the 150 psalms that are psalms of lament. Namely, for instance, a psalm like Psalm 13, where he cries out, similar to Habakkuk here, How long, O Lord? And then usually through the psalm, there's a kind of a, a, a kind of self-coaching of trust in God through the psalm. In the midst of the grief, in the midst of the sorrows. But it starts out with a lament, a, a lamentation, a cry, a mourn, a sorrowful heart. And just in case you're still a little bit suspicious of this kind of lamenting, crying, if you were to turn to the book of Revelation and to hear a cry from the present heaven from martyrs which if you're a martyr guess what you're dead right <laughs> okay so these are these are martyrs in the present heaven in Revelation six ten, who are crying out? So we can safely assume that it's it's a righteous kind of cry, right? Because you know they're not here on earth. Now they may not have received their glorified body yet, uh, but but they're in the present heaven. They're without remaining sin. And in Revelation chapter six and verse ten, it says they cried out with a loud voice, saying, "How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood?" on those who dwell on the earth. Now put that in your theological pipe and smoke on it a bit. Because not only are they crying to God how long, but also, they're praying for blood. Okay, They're praying for vengeance upon those who had wickedly slit their throats or had executed however they had murdered them. They wanted God to act in justice, and they wanted Him to do it soon. Okay? And so, that is a lament that actually comes from heaven. Okay? It's a lament that the martyrs cries, they're longing for God to bring about justice upon the earth. And so, hopefully I was able to stretch your thinking a little bit and give you a category for a kind of righteous groaning before God. And and this presents to us really in some ways the reality of unanswered prayer, right? The reality that sometimes you're praying for something that you know is a righteous thing to pray for. You know that you could you could pray with confidence, not just as a kind of mantra on the tail end of the prayer in Jesus' name, but, but you can really pray it in Jesus' name. You know that this is the will of God. It's part of His revealed will. Maybe you're praying for the salvation of somebody else, or maybe you're you're praying for a, a, a brother or sister who's going through hardship to follow the Lord, and, and, and you're pleading, you're, you're pointing, Your heart out before God, but God just seems silent. This is Habakkuk's experience here. He's crying out, and God doesn't seem to be acting. He sees the situation around him, around himself, and what does he see? Notice what he sees here in verse 2, it says, I cry out to you, violence, and yet you do not save. Violence. This is interesting because this, this word comes up early in the Bible, uh, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 6, in verse 11, where God sees all the wickedness that's on the earth. He sees that the earth is full of violence. That people are murdering one another, people are abusing one another, people are doing wicked deeds towards one another. It comes up in another kind of psalm of lament. Psalm 73 in verse 6 where it's a psalm of Asaph where he sees the prosperity of the wicked and he's, he's having doubts and he's struggling uh, with, with questions of faith. And, and it says in Psalm 73 verse 6, Therefore pride is their necklace and the garment of violence covers them. And so Habakkuk sees all the violence around him. He sees uh, just the the, the evil of people taking innocent lives. And it's amongst God's covenant people. And he cries out, How long, O God, how can you look at this and not act? And much like Tabakkuk, we also live in a world of violence. We live in a world where people are gunned down on, uh, on the streets on a regular basis. Seems like almost every evening there's some kind of shooting taking place in the city of Youngstown. You can hear gunshots not far away. There's... Now, maybe some of you live out in the country and somebody's doing some hunting or something, but if you live anywhere near Youngstown, you hear gunshots, you know it's not somebody hunting, okay? It's sadly people hunting one another. We live in a world that seems to have more concern over baby rhinoceros than they do unborn children. In the United States of America approximately 5 million unborn children are surgically murdered every year in the name of women's health or women's choice. It doesn't even tell us the number of chemical abortions that may be taking place. You can't record those, but God knows. God knows. God sees. And everything seems all twisted and perverted. And, and, and even a, a couple of years ago, you remember when, uh, when, when uh, some journalists began to expose Planned Parenthood and the buying and selling of baby body parts. And just an awful, wicked thing. The acting Attorney General of the State of California, also the current Vice President, Kamala Harris, indicts those journalists and prosecutes them for illegal wiretapping because they were recording the conversation. And your heart ponders the reality of the violence, the murder, the the utter disregard for human beings made in the image of Almighty God. And your heart cries out, How long, O God, how long can you look upon the violence and not act? Many ministries raise up like the Pregnancy Help Center to try to intercept abortion-minded women or there's people outside of abortion clinics preaching the gospel and these are good things, but it just seems like there's just an avalanche of violence that is impossible to overcome. All you can do is pray, but it doesn't seem like God's doing anything. Verse 3, Why do you make me see iniquity, Habakkuk says, and cause me to look on wickedness? Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Now, notice here Habakkuk, his theology is correct in that he understands that God is ultimately the sovereign. God is never the agent of evil, but but God could remove wickedness and evil if He wanted to. Uh, Habakkuk hasn't imbibed the notion that God's hands are somehow tied because He's given man the almighty free will and He must passively stand and want. No. God is God. He can do whatever He wants to do. And Habakkuk's crying out, God, do something, but... He just sees the wickedness passing before him. Habakkuk's concerns here are good. If you, even as a child, if you got wind of someone disrespecting your parent, your father, your mother... If that child has any kind of love for their parent, their heart is going to swell up with a measure of irritation, right? Of heaviness of heart. Or even as a spouse, maybe if you, you see one of your children disrespect your, your, your husband or your wife, your, your heart swells up and you may even see, aren't you going to do something about that? <laughs> right? Well, our hearts swell up god uh, god your your name is defamed people are murdered uh, violence wickedness is all around us god aren't aren't, aren't you going to do something the second part of verse three yes destruction and violence are before me strife exists and contention arises no, notice these four words here destruction violence same word we see saw earlier on this kind of Murder and mayhem, strife and contentions, he now adds to it. It's the idea of relationships are broken. There's conflict. There's polarization. This also is something of the world that we find ourselves in broken families, divorce. And now, strife within families uh, that goes across political boundaries, that goes across whether you wear a mask, don't wear a mask, vaccinate, don't vaccinate. And now there's all kinds of conflict. Some weeks ago, I was met a young man and started talking with him and found out he had a background in Christianity. He was probably in his early 20's and he described himself as a church hopper and I was trying to encourage him to have commitment to the bride of Christ and he shared with me that in his young life he had been through six church splits. He's only 21 years old, been through six church splits. Just awful. I can only imagine the things that he's observed as a as a as a boy and now as a young man to see backbiting and politicking and nastiness that sometimes is even within the local church. Verse four. Therefore the law is ignored, and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. He says here, the law is ignored. Now now sometimes when we read the word law, we immediately think of the commandments of God. And, And it certainly includes that, but when Habakkuk here is using the word law, the Torah, he, he's talking about the Scriptures which includes those commands but also includes God's grace and redemption. I mean, you read even the, the Ten Commandments that we see in Exodus 20 are to be obeyed in light of God redeeming them out of Israel. So it's really all of God's revelation, all that God has revealed of Himself, of His will and His ways and His self-disclosure of Himself. It, it Notice he says, here it's ignored, or some of your translations may say paralyzed, feeble, it's numb, it seems to be ineffective. And again, think of the, the, the context in which Habakkuk is living. He has lived through the reign of Josiah, right? Josiah, this was the king, he was a boy king at one point. He was eight years old and he was king over Israel. Think about that, young people. You would like to be king at eight years old, wouldn't you? But sometime later, later on in his teenage years and early adulthood, he gave some instructions for the temple to be cleaned up, to be renovated. In, in this renovation project... Somebody came across the book of the law. There was evidently scrolls that were found. And and evidently this was like a new find. This was like, wow, the Bible. (laughs) And, And one of these guys brought the Scriptures to Josiah and began to read it to him. And do you remember how Josiah responded? He began to tear his clothes, he's broken, he's weeping, he's repentant, and then he knows he needs to bring about change and repentance in ancient Israel. And he starts abolishing all the idolatry, and there's a movement that comes back to the book. And people seem to be responding People seem to be repenting. There seems to be change amongst God's people. But then, the years go by, the decades go by, and now Josiah's dead. And his son, Jehoiakim, is a wicked man. He is an evil man man. In fact, one of Habakkuk's contemporaries was Jeremiah. And if you read through Jeremiah chapter 36, you'll see that Jeremiah, who's a prophet who gives revelation from God, he has his his secretary Baruch write down revelation from God and hand deliver it to Jehoiakim. And do you remember what Jehoiakim does with it? He he actually cuts it up and then throws it in the fireplace. He didn't have a lighter. He cuts it up and throws it in the fireplace. So you you can you can feel something of the weight. That's upon Habakkuk's heart. The the law, the Torah, is it seems paralyzed. God's Word is not taking effect. I mean, doesn't Psalm 19 say the law of the Lord is perfect? Converting the soul, making the, the simple wise, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. Doesn't the Word do its work? But God, it's not working. It's not transforming lives. It seems to just fall on deaf ears. That The minute it comes from the preacher's mouth and hits the ears, it, it pounces to the floor. And his heart is heavy. His, again, his concerns are righteous. And then notice what he says here in verse 4. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. The wicked surround or encamp the righteous, and and they're not around the righteous to learn from the righteous. They're not surrounding the righteous to, to, to glean some knowledge from the righteous or to learn their ways. They're surrounding the righteous, encamping around the righteous to persecute them to do violence to them. In fact, this same king, Jehoiakim, who tossed Jeremiah's revelation in the fireplace, sent assassins to Egypt to find one of the prophets, Uriah, to have him executed. He wasn't content just to persecute the righteous in his midst who went against his diplomatic policies, but, but he actually had them hunted down. He had Jeremiah thrown in, in a deep well without water, left to die a long, painful death. But mercifully, Ebed-Melech pulled him out of the well And so Habakkuk sees that the the Word of God doesn't seem to be taking effect. The righteous are being persecuted. and, And again, I can't help but think the contemporary relevance. As the Word of God, as Christianity is butted out of any kind of public conversation, dismissed, as extremist ideas. Ideas that, you know, in many ways are, you know, maybe ten years old, have become the law of the land. And if you don't get with the times, get on the right side of history, you're butted out of the conversation. Looking at the global scene, Brothers and sisters across the world, the righteous are being encamped by the wicked. A couple of weeks ago on Palm Sunday in Indonesia, a couple on a motorcycle pulled up to a church, had some explosives, set a bomb off as people were coming out of the Palm Sunday service. Nineteen people were seriously injured. Christians in Nigeria constantly being attacked and harassed and persecuted by the Boko Haram. Christians in China having to tell their people where they're going to meet within 12 hours of meeting because they constantly have to change their locations that they're meeting because they're under constant surveillance by the government. And now even just north of us, great Canada, arresting pastors for having their churches meeting in the name of public health And the heart cries out with Habakkuk, How long, O Lord? God, aren't you going to do something here? Aren't you going to act? One question we should ask ourselves is whether we have the same perspective on the sinfulness of human society as Habakkuk. He was disturbed, not amused by the sinfulness of society. Question for us, are we, are, are we amused by the current state of our society? Are we profoundly concerned? If Christians, do we not weep over the lostness of society? If we don't, who will? Now, sometimes an unbeliever, somebody who's not a Christian, will look at the evil and suffering in this world and and take a jab at Christianity, take a jab at the existence of God and say, well, how could I even believe in a God that exists with all... I agree with you, Matt, the violence, the abuse, the evil that exists in this world. And it comes across convincing, right? Right? But it's really not that convincing if you just scratch a little bit below the surface. Because friends, if there is no God, then there actually is no righteousness. And there is no unrighteousness. There is no injustice if there is no God. If there is no God, there is no transcendent absolute moral authority to say this is wrong, this is right. All you are left with without God, without the God of Christianity, is mere opinion. So you may not like what one person does to another person, but you don't actually have justification grounds to say, that is evil, that is wrong. Now you can say that, but your belief system actually can't account for it. I mean, what's wrong with what one bag of molecules does to another bag of molecules? I mean... Just it just is. You may not like it, but you can't say that it's wrong. I mean, after all, if we're just on the front end of the evolutionary train, and and, and we're you know uh, the products of natural selection and the and the, the survival of the fittest, well, then might makes right. Kill off the weak. Oppress the weak. But not for the believer. Believer sees the evil in this world and sees the character of God, and his heart cries out. So let me give you here as we look at this, three ingredients for good groaning or good grief. And we see these laying on the text here. Good grief, we see Habakkuk, he's concerned about God's concerns. This is proper. This is proper sorrow. You know, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 speaks of there is a worldly sorrow and there's a godly sorrow. This is a godly sorrow. He's concerned about the violence that he sees, he's concerned that image bearers are being murdered, people are being taken by force. He's concerned about the sin and iniquity that he sees. He's concerned that there's strife, there's contention, there's division, there's not unity in relationships, there's no peace and harmony. He's concerned that the Word of God does not seem to be effective, the Scriptures seem to be paralyzed and ineffective. He longs to see the Word of God run like a wildfire over the people of God. He sees the wicked are persecuting the righteous. Friends, these are valid concerns. These are the heart cry of a heart that is concerned about the things that God is concerned about. Apathy and indifference is not a virtue to the thing, When when there's apathy and indifference to the things of God, that is not a virtue. And so, we need to pause and ask ourselves, is, is there a kind of burden in our heart that spills over into crying out to God for the good of His church and therefore for the good of the society around us? Or is there just indifference? God's... When the heart sees the evil around you, and God being defamed, do you long for it not to be that way? When you see the church fledgling in weakness and cowardice, does your heart raise up and say, God, oh God, bring forth a revival in our midst. God, raise up courageous leaders. Or is it just indifferent? When you're praying for things that you know... God has revealed in His Word are righteous things, are good things. And there seems to be inactivity. That's a good concern. But secondly, not only is this good groaning, good grief concerned with God's concerns, it communicates with God. It communicates with God. Did you notice Habakkuk is taking his concerns to God. He's talking to God about his concerns. He's not abandoning God. He's he's amidst the sorrow and the grief and the heaviness, but he's facing towards God. Now earlier I mentioned the different Psalms of Lament. Lament. And there's one psalm in particular. Most of the psalms of lament I mentioned, they, they start out kind of in the dumps, but eventually, by the end of the psalm, you know, the, the psalmist seems to be kind of clicking his heels, trusting in the Lord, rejoicing in his salvation. But there's one psalm in the Psalter that doesn't get there. It's called the saddest psalm of the Psalter. It's Psalm 88. Easy to remember. Because it just stays down in the dumps. It's just lament after lament after... It's depressing. But I remember some years ago, after years of being puzzled by the psalm, reading an article, an article by David Powelson on the psalm. And he said... One thing that you notice about the psalm, that while it never gets to that kind of confident trust in God, by the end of the psalm, he's still talking to God. He's still facing in the right direction. Now, by the time we get to the end of Habakkuk, he's going to be in a sense, clicking his heels. Even though none, none of his circumstances change at all, he's trusting in the Lord. But but nonetheless, where we are right here, he's still talking to God. He's still crying out to God. He's still facing in the right direction. And sometimes, friends, that's all you can do is just keep facing the right direction. Whatever sorrows and difficulties and grief you're going through where your heart is just groaning before God, God, aren't you going to do something? Keep groaning. Keep talking to Him. Keep facing in that direction. Don't let go of Him. You may not understand all that He's doing, but keep talking to Him. Makes me think of Apostle Peter, after many had departed from the Lord in John chapter 6, Jesus then turns to the twelve and says, do you want to go away also? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so, you may be in a posture of deep grief. You may be going through a heavy trial. Or maybe it's just in in your heart cry for the good of the church and the good of society and Western culture. And, And your heart is heavy over the reality that God doesn't seem to be acting. Just keep groaning towards Him. Keep crying out to Him. Don't give up. A, you might have heard of her. Her name's Helen Roosevelt. She died just a couple years ago. She was in her 90s at the time when she died. But for many years, she was a missionary, a missionary doctor in Zaire. In the 60s, there was great political turmoil in Zaire. In the midst of that political turmoil, on several occasions, she was kidnapped by these rebels. She was kidnapped, tortured, brutally raped, time and time and time again. And she recalls that in her head, it just seemed like God was asking her the question, if I never tell you the purpose for all of this, Will you still love me? Will you still trust me? And she said there was a moment where, again, it seemed like God was asking her that question that she resolved, I will trust you. Amidst the awfulness of what she was going through, she resolved she was going to still face the Lord. Still keep crying out to Him. This good grief. It's concerned about God's concerns. It communicates with God. And third, it complies with godly change. Habakkuk doesn't stay here, does he? He's wrestling with God. He's crying out to God. God is responding to his concerns as we're going to see in the upcoming weeks. But, but by the time you get to the end of Habakkuk, in this psalm, this prayer that Habakkuk records in 3.17 and eighteen, he writes, "'Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines,' Though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should, not be, should, should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. This is where Habakkuk ends up. Okay, But that's not where he's at in chapter 1. And quite frankly, we don't know how much time elapsed between chapter 1 and chapter 3. I mean, we could read it in about 10 minutes, but I don't know. Was it months? Was it years? The point being is that That as Habakkuk is crying out to God and he has these concerns about God and his seemingly inactivity and is not answering the prayers and the godly concerns that Habakkuk has, that he's willing to ultimately accept that God is God and he doesn't know everything. That he doesn't realize what God is doing behind the scenes, that his cries are valid concerns, but he's speaking from the posture of ignorance, and ultimately he's going to need to close his mouth and say, God, you're God, I'll trust you. Pastor Chris uses this illustration that I love to use and reuse about people lying in a ditch. Okay, you know, sometimes somebody comes to us with their problems and they're in a ditch. They're going through some difficulty, some trial, and they're, they're down there lying in the ditch, and they, they want other people to come down in the ditch with them. And it's proper to go down in the ditch and to lie down next to them in the ditch. And yeah, this is a ditch. To, to be able to weep with those who weep. But there has to be a point where you say, Yeah, I think we need to get out of the ditch. And sometimes people want to fight. No, 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 no. I'm good here. You go back up out of the ditch, but I'm going to stay in the ditch. And, and, And sometimes we just need to gently take them by the hand, say, No, let's get out of the ditch. We need to get out of the ditch. It's not helping lying down in the ditch. Habakkuk is in the ditch in chapter 1 here, right? He's down in the ditch. He's crying out. He's, he, he's discouraged of the reality of what he sees. He's crying out to God, but, but he doesn't stay there. And we know that because we can read the end of it. And Habakkuk, the rest of the book, he's going to, in a sense, take our hand and show us how he got out of the ditch. And so where are you? are you are you lying down in the ditch? Do you need to be reminded of some of these truths that Habakkuk's going to share with us that, That God is God and he got His purposes and He is doing something. You may not be able to see it. His His invisible hand of providence is working all over. He's moving pieces and, and, and you may not get it. You may not understand it. You can't see His hand. It is invisible, but it's on the move. And you can trust Him. Maybe you're not in the ditch, or maybe you know some people in the ditch and you need to help them. Maybe you're struggling with doubts in the Christian faith. You're going through tremendous trial and difficulty. I hope that as we see the God of Habakkuk, who's the true and living God, that you will see He is a God who can be trusted. You may not understand all of how He works behind the scenes with all the wickedness that exists in this world, but you can trust Him. We see something of this lament, this concern, this groaning, this godly groaning, even as we look at the life of Christ. You see, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus is there crying out. As He anticipates the reality of what He's going to experience the next day in bearing the wrath of the Father upon the cross, He cries out, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. It's a heart cry, it's a, it's a groaning, it's, it's a reality of looking at what He was about to encounter and the awful wrath of hell that He was going to bear for those three hours upon the cross. And, and His heart flinched at that reality as any godly heart would. The prospect of being under the hand of God's judgment. And he cries out. We see it even as he's hanging on the cross, as he he quotes a psalm of lament, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the heart cry of agony, of bearing the wrath of the Father as he's on the cross. And the Father answers His heart cry and ultimately vindicates Him. But the struggle there, I think, Peter records how Jesus endured and got through that. It says in 1 Peter 2.23 that while being reviled, He did not revile and return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him Who judges righteously? He kept entrusting himself to Him, who judges righteously. You see, friends, we have a God, who you could never say, "God, you don't understand." You don't know what it's like to suffer the way I have. You don't know what it's like to endure the injustices that I have. But we have one who has encountered the most severe injustices. His friends abandoning him at his moment of crisis. The the kangaroo court that trumps up charges against him. And all that he endured with a heart cry to God, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But ultimately, he entrusted himself to Him who judges justly. And friend, if you have not yet put your trust in this great God... You should do so. He knows what it's like to live in a fallen world. He knows what it's like to trust the Father in the midst of heartache and injustice. He knows what it's like to groan in agony, the seeming inactivity of the Father. You can trust Him. You ought to trust Him. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we come before you. and Lord, some sitting in this room have suffered much. Some have suffered a little. But to have not suffered is really to not have lived long enough. Because it will come. It's just a matter of when. The phone call. The horrible news. The diagnosis. Lord, give us a heart of confidence and trust in You. Also, give us the proper grief in the midst of the ditch, but also, Lord, give us a way out of the ditch so that we can glorify you.